Welcome everyone to Roger's List. This is the show where I'm watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies and I'm bringing along a lot of awesome guests to join me and discuss all of these crazy flicks. Uh, today, my name is Steve Gunley and all I represent, man, is someone who needs a haircut. <laughs> my guest, my first guest today has a helmet and it is a beauty, let me tell you. Uh, welcome back to Nicole Batiste. Hi, Nicole. Hi. I like your helmet. Oh. It's a nice old gold football helmet. You look really good. People at home can't see it, but like she's definitely wearing a football helmet right now. That's a and perfect wearing, replica, replica. It is. And I'm wearing yeah. a, a fringe jacket. So, yeah. Mm. Uh, we're also joined today by a headliner, baby. She's played every state fair in this county. I mean, for top dollar. It's Emma Delaney. Hi, Emma. Hello. I am so happy to see you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Oh, man. Today, we are talking about the movie Easy Rider. Easy Rider was released July 14th, 1969, directed by Dennis Hopper, and it stars Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, Jack Nicholson, Karen Black, Tony Basil, and Luke Askew, which is just a cool name that I like. Easy Rider is a big, big movie to talk about. I think this is... I think unquestionably it's one of the most influential American films that we've ever had. It kind of informally launched the independent film movement. And it's one of those movies that I've always kind of like appreciated academically, but I've never really loved it. But something about watching it this time clicked a little bit better for me. I'm thinking maybe it's just the 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 coronavirus isolation uh, is making the the idea of hitting the open road and like just living like a dirty hippie for a little while just seems really appealing to me right now. Um, before we get into any of that, I wanted to ask the both of you. Uh, I'll start with you, Emma. Uh, why did you want to come on this episode in particular? Um, well, I signed up for a bunch of movies on the list, and this was the first one. And I went through first, and I found movies that I already knew I liked and that I wanted to talk about, like. Mm. Um, I signed up for The Shining, Pulp Fiction, West Side Story, all of those movies that like already mean a lot to me. Yeah. But I wanted to pick movies that I also had heard of and wanted to see or had never heard of at all. And so this was one of the heard of and wanted to see but never mm. had um, because – and then I looked into it a little bit and I found it's a kind of Western model buddy flick. Yeah. And um, I'll get into it a little bit more later, but – I love buddy films and just the um, the theory behind them and the psychology of what they kind of create. And so this being, um, also I love Jack Nicholson and I was like, done. Oh my God. <laughs> he just totally stole the show for me too. But anyway, yeah, I just wanted to do something that I knew was a big part of film culture that I had never experienced yet. And so I didn't do any looking into it until last night because I wanted all of my new research to be like super fresh. And the more I researched about it, the more I was like, yes, I cannot wait to watch this. So I got kind of a framework out of the way that I researched it. And then I watched the film with that framework. Mm -hmm. And it really, it really made me feel like a, a, an emotional attachment. I got emotional with this movie. So anyway, that's my journey. That's exciting. No, I love that. I, I hope more people like want to come on the show and talk about movies they've never seen because I haven't seen a good deal of these. And I, I think it's really fun to kind of discover them. And Nicole, you have seen this one before. Yeah, I have. And I honestly, I, it had kind of blended together with some other movies in my head, but I just galaxy quest. <sighs> sure. The Godfather yeah. three. <laughs> 
yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, Ants with Woody Allen. Actually, yeah. I mean, weirdly, you do mention Galaxy Quest, and like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it did make me think of that because of the desert. But, That's you know. true. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. I just, I, I love the idea of like this. Like, I kind of want to do this road trip and go to New Orleans. Like, it's just, I. I think those things I really connect to and like I really like the way this movie sets up that like the wilderness and how and the beauty of it. These are like your regions that they're covering, like the regions that you connect with the most, like the Southwest and like New Orleans. These are these are parts of the world that I know you personally love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's well, really I have cool. to bring in a fun fact about that. If you find a time machine and you can go back to last year yeah for the low low price of 4300 to 7700 dollars you could go on the easy rider 50th anniversary tour wow that was uh created and authenticated by the production company and they would take you to all the different places that sounds dope that actually would be wow. kind of fun like i'm not a motorcycle rider the Here's the thing. My dad is actually a biker. Like he has been, uh, you know, as, as long as he's been my dad, like, uh, and he actually told me that the reason for that was this movie. Uh, he, this movie would have come out when he was 16 years old and you can imagine like being a 16 year old and like super connecting with this movie. Like, and this was kind of how he spent his seventies. He was like this wild haired, like biker, like, I, you know, run, like doing like dr long drives from San Francisco to Vancouver and back and like just just hitting the open road on his. Uh, well, he didn't have a Harley. He had a Triumph. But uh, yeah, and he's he's still like a biker guy. But the funny thing is, like he told me about it and how influential this movie was. And he said he's only seen it once, but it really stuck with him. So I bought it for him on DVD one year for his birthday. And like whatever whatever it was he saw it the first time wasn't there anymore like he's oh, just kind of like he's like oh i don't remember there being this much drugs in this and i'm like well that's that's kind of an indictment dad of uh, of the your state of mind at the that point but yeah <laughs> yeah and i think it just didn't really connect with him in the same way it did even though he does still ride bikes and like still gets around uh and that's kind of been the opposite of my experience like i didn't relate to this movie at all for a really long time i still don't necessarily but like right now at this point in history this looks so good like i just want to get with a buddy and like go on a long long journey out into the open and meet random people and share meals and the the, the freedom of it really is speaking to me right now uh all right well i want to jump in and talk a little bit about our director here because man this is a wild character dennis hopper one of the most interesting and uh fascinating troubled figures in hollywood history he uh was known for being impetuous and brilliant and hot-headed and he was difficult to work with and he could be a complete pain in the ass but he carved a very very unique place for himself in film history so dennis hopper he was born in kansas in 1936 he took a keen interest in theater and shakespeare at a very early age so he moved to Hollywood almost immediately after graduating high school, where he became friends with a young actor named James Dean. And Hopper absolutely idolized James Dean. They were friends, but he was also like his hero. And uh, Dean helped get uh, Hopper's first two film roles, which were both of his movies, Rebel Without a Cause and Giant. Uh, so he appears in both of those. 
And after uh, James Dean died in a car wreck, Hopper was just completely despondent and he became kind of impossible to work with. He started developing a reputation for clashing with directors. Uh, he had his own kind of perfectionist vision of the story that he wanted to see. And after one particularly heated uh, clash with the director, he couldn't find work again for seven years. And it was only thanks to friendships that he'd acquired with uh, some certain powerful names you may have heard of, like John Wayne and Elvis Presley. Yes, that's right. He was friends with all of these people uh, they, he, that he was able to find work again. John Wayne cast him in the movie The Sons of Katie Elder. And after that, he started getting more and more parts like in Cool Hand Luke, which kind of made him uh, an in-demand performer again. So it was around the time Cool Hand Luke came out that Hopper and his friends Peter Fonda and Jack Nicholson began to, to kind of conceive the idea for Easy Rider. Uh, by this time in history, Dennis Hopper had become wildly addicted to cocaine. Uh, Hopper is, uh, he's, he's prone to exaggerating his own life story quite a bit. So he, he likes to claim that he introduced cocaine to Los Angeles and that he did the bulk of it. Uh, I, I don't doubt that he did a lot and I, I don't think he necessarily introduced it, but you know, so you have to kind of take everything he says with a grain of Coke. Um, but, <laughs> um I have so, fun facts about the Coke for later. Oh yes. I want to hear him. I want to hear him. So uh, just like the, the movie, the shooting of Easy Rider, we'll get into it in a second, but like it was a very chaotic production, but it also hit in a really big way. And in that same year that it came out, 1969, Hopper also had a large part in the movie True Grit. So he was instrumental in two of the 10 highest grossing films of that year. And so he was very much back in the public eye and people were curious about what he was going to do next. Uh, unfortunately, the next two decades of Hopper's career were defined by drugs, excess, and chaos because he tried and failed to replicate his Easy Rider success. He followed up that movie with one called The Last Movie, which, again, had a legendary chaotic production. He went down to Peru, and he ended up clashing with the clergy and with the military uh, because uh, uh, Peru was under kind of a pseudo-fascist regime at the time, and uh, the movie that Hopper was making was tolerant towards homosexuality which was illegal in peru at the time um and and so he also just picked fights with people and he did a lot of drugs and had to be kind of separated because he was always yelling at the crew uh the movie finally came out and it was a critical and commercial bomb he kind of spent the next several years starring in like really cheapy little european films uh and and b movies just to make enough money to keep up with his habit in 1979, he did get uh, he got cast in a small role in Apocalypse Now, that was like a scene stealing role. If you've seen the movie, he's amazing in it, uh, and that kind of helped put him back in the public eye again. He started getting more and more work. Uh, he hit his low finally in 1983 uh, as part of an art project. He was he was uh, completely whacked on coke and he locked himself in a coffin with 17 live sticks of dynamite in what he billed as a uh, artistic suicide attempt. Uh, he was luckily pulled out of that and it didn't go off. And he, he finally was able to, uh, he, he was finally convinced to check himself into rehab after that, because I feel like locking yourself in a coffin with dynamite is a pretty strong symbolic, uh, uh representation of rock bottom. It's horrifying. Yeah. Um, but his career started to get back on track after that. He, he got cast as the villain Frank Booth in blue velvet, which is an amazing performance. He got an Oscar nomination in 1987 for the movie Hoosiers. 
And then throughout mm-hmm. the 90s, he was kind of he Dennis Hopper. I only knew in my childhood as like the villains of all of my favorite movies. So he's the bad guy in Speed. He's the bad guy in Waterworld. He's King Koopa in the Super Mario Brothers movie. He's, <laughs> he's so many villains. And so that's kind of how I knew him throughout that entire period. Um, so Hopper passed away in 2010 from prostate cancer. Uh, his friends claimed that he had mellowed out significantly once he kicked his drug habit. But his life was still marked by conflict and drama. He was married five times. The average marriage lasted about two years. In one case, uh, he was married to Michelle Phillips from the Mamas and the Papas for one week. Uh, (laughs) And then his later life was marked with divorce and lawsuits, often involving things that he said and did 30, 40 years ago when he was on drugs. So he kind of never really got out from under it. Um, but he, he left a pretty indelible mark on cinema. He's, he's a very unusual guy and, uh, sounds like I would hate working with him completely, but, uh, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Did you guys have any experience with Dennis Hopper before this? Was he just like a movie villain to you? I like knew him, but I didn't know him because I knew him as, like you said, speed. Yeah. But then like loved him as that loved him in Waterworld didn't connect it was the same people oh yeah yeah to me he's one of those that just like and cut he's he's the role and he looks and acts so much different i feel like surprisingly between those villains that i just i didn't even realize it was the same dude yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i wouldn't have been able to pick him out like i i love hearing about his reasons for like he took the super mario brothers movie because he was completely flat broke and his he didn't know it was a video game until he signed on for the movie and uh that's another famously terrible production with a a really abusive director but yeah he he's he claims he was able to buy his son a bike and that's all that mattered so you know there we go he bought his son a bike from that movie uh all right i want to get into a little bit about the development and the production of easy rider because this is one of the most legendarily dysfunctional film sets of all time i loved it so much it felt like a shakespearean like tragedy every every step you go further you're like this is a fucking mess it gets worse and worse (laughs) the more you go on so hopper first met uh, the actor peter fonda during the production of a movie called the trip in 1967 which was uh directed by the legendary b-movie producer roger corman and written by a uh, unknown character actor by the name of Jack Nicholson. So this movie, The Trip, is kind of credited with popularizing LSD use in America, and it kind of made a countercultural like hero out of Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda is the son, of course, of Henry Fonda, one of the great um, acting legends of classic Hollywood, and he's the, the brother of Jane Fonda and the father of Bridget Fonda. There's a whole like empire going on there. Of all the Fondas. All the Fondas are <laughs> fascinating, and... So Fonda also starred in a movie called uh, The Wild Angels in 1966, which was a motorcycle drama. So he was very into motorcycles and motorcycle culture was, I think, at its peak around the 60s. You know, this is when I don't know, there was just something about the the freedom of the open road and not having a roof over your head or something about it. But motorcycle culture was really peaking at this time. So uh, Fonda was under contract to produce one more motorcycle film uh, for AIP. So he and Dennis Hopper and a writer named Terry Southern collaborated on a screenplay. Uh, Now, Southern, in a later interview, he claims that there really wasn't a screenplay, that it was just kind of largely improvised, and that Dennis Hopper didn't write anything. He just made up a couple lines and then gave himself credit. Uh, Is that what you did? Did you find that? Yes, I saw um, some 
like back and forth between the two of them. Basically, um, Hopper said that all, um, what's the other guy's name again? Oh, Terry, Terry Southern. Yeah. Uh, he says that all Terry wrote was the, the name and he <laughs> didn't write, he goes, he didn't fucking write shit. He gave <laughs> us the fucking name and that was it. And then, um, um, Fonda's like, he gave us a lot of the themes that we went in and was like very gracious and like thankful to him. And Hopper's just like, fuck that guy. <laughs> he yeah. can do anything. Yeah. That, that seems to be kind of the theme. Like, like Peter Fonda was definitely indulging during this production as well, but he also kind of had to act as the go between for a lot of people. He was because Hopper, he was, he was so like zooted out on drugs at this point that he was, paranoid and he was hollering at people and they started hemorrhaging crew members they only had a budget of about four hundred thousand dollars which would be equivalent to two million dollars today and uh fonda had to pay for lodging transportation and food out of his own pocket and he later also paid an additional one million dollars to secure the rights to the soundtrack which was a brilliant move on his part i think that was a great choice so yeah uh hopper's drug addiction was really causing a lot of trouble uh, originally, the role of George Hansen went to uh, Terry Southern's friend, the actor Rip Torn, who we might remember as the boss from uh, uh, Men in Black, and he's from Dodgeball, a whole bunch of other things. And he's maybe the only person in Hollywood history who was more of a train wreck than Dennis Hopper. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Rip Torn was when he was in his 70s. He was arrested one morning, uh, pantsless in a bank with a loaded gun in his hand, because he tried to rob a bank at like midnight, uh, not realizing that it, he not really understanding why it wasn't open. So <laughs> the police just kind of found this 70 year old naked man uh, with a gun <laughs> the next morning. So uh, Rip Torn was originally cast as George Hansen. And allegedly, a knife fight broke out between Dennis Hopper and Rip Torn. Uh, and so and it's it's unclear who started it or why there are eyewitnesses and conflicting information in both cases but this came up when dennis hopper told this story on the jay leno show in the mid 90s and so rip torn sued him for defamation and said no he was the one who pulled the knife on me and a judge ruled in his favor he won like half a million dollars off of that defamation suit did you know what kind of knife he said that he held to him no a fucking butter knife a butter knife? Yes. Riptorn said it was a butter knife. <laughs> that Hopper came at him with a butter knife. I'm like. Peter Fonda was saying at one point that uh, Dennis Hopper was defending himself with a salad fork. Like, <laughs> it, it sounds like it was more goofy than scary. I would scary. go fork before I would go butter knife. I if I so. was being serious. Yeah. No, fork could fuck you up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jesus oh, Christ. God. Sorry. That fork I was up. thinking like in the arm, and that was already, already gnarly to me. Down his fucking throat. <laughs> so many. Dick him. Dick, in dick the him. Ear. The uh, <laughs> so, yeah, the movie started hemorrhaging crew members. They couldn't handle Hopper's constant paranoid tirades. And they started actually filming him uh, uh, secretly so that they could send these videos to the studio and say, just so you know, like, we're not irresponsible or terrible crew members. This is what we were dealing with and why we had to leave. So they started just kind of picking up crew members on the road. Uh, they had a very skeleton crew and uh, they would drive, they would ride their bikes to a location and then they would find some locals or some traveling hippies 
and oftentimes they would pay them in either booze or weed and everybody was just kind of like zonked out of their mind the entire time filming it everywhere they went and i mean there are all kinds of production errors that kind of like like you know the whole final scene the drug trip in new orleans it looks all washed out and you think it's kind of a stylistic choice it's really because somebody left the canister of film open like the film was just corrupted because somebody didn't think to close it and it just I happened to work that. for that That's scene amazing. so like some there's a lot of kind of uh, uh lucky things that happened here and i heard or i read that um I, going back to when you said uh, they didn't make a full, like, write a lot of it. Yeah. Someone said all they wrote was, God, I wish I'd written down who said that, but all they wrote was the, like, preview chapters that you give out when you're trying to make a film that it's not finished yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just so that they could get people on board and then literally didn't write anything else. And I think uh, Nicholson wrote a lot of his own dialogue and kind of stuck with that to a large degree because apparently one of the things they were trying to do on the set was try and trip Jack Nicholson up. He he wasn't a big pot smoker at the time, and but the scene where they're all sitting around the campfire getting him high for the first time, those were real joints. Nicholson says that the three of those guys went through 155 joints just filming that scene. Which makes my lungs hurt thinking. About. I wrote that down too. I love that fact so much. But, but Nicholson then he still says, nailed his lines. Yeah. Yeah, but then he says that they the only reason they didn't get real coke for the other scenes is because they couldn't afford it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say they they I I read that the the coke and the acid was fake, and I had a hard mm -hmm. time believing it. But now you say that that makes more sense. It to does. Me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Robert yeah, did so, it all himself. It is really amazing, considering how much of everything went wrong, that there's a watchable movie here at all. And honestly, if Dennis Hopper had had his way, it probably wouldn't have been. His original cut of this movie was five hours long. And it was going to use like a non-linear story structure where it kept jumping back and forth in time. And there are all these different subplots. And we were supposed to be following these guys forever and ever. And uh, the only way they were able to get it down to like the crisp 90 minutes that they've got it down to is by basically tricking Hopper into taking a vacation to Taos, New Mexico. They just like sent him off with a bag of drugs and said, hey, okay, you go relax. And then they gave the editing job to a filmmaker named Henry Jaglom, who just put it together and made like a cohesive film <laughs> out of the 40 plus hours that they had shot. Um, and it, it's, it's amazing that it came together and it's amazing that this resonated with audiences. Uh, this, this connected with audiences in a way that nobody really expected. It just was one of those movies that kind of, it came in like number four or five in the box office its first weekend, and then it just never left. It, it hit number one its 14th week in the box office, which is something that never happens anymore. And uh, uh, it, it took forever. And so on that measly $400,000 budget, they made $60 million, which adjusted for inflation today is $400 million on this tiny little experimental film. You know uh, what I think really did it is the music, the soundtrack. The soundtrack is instrumental. This was the first um, like big movie to not orchestrate their own soundtrack and to use found music. Yeah. And now it's kind of like the standard, right? But yeah. uh, uh, any and other I time they've been like using stock music. It just made the emotional connection. Like thinking about, think of, you've never heard the music that you already feel emotional to in a movie and then all of a sudden this emotional story and in a song that you already love and like 
the when the main theme came on during the opening credits and it was uh, "Born to Be Wild." Yeah, I was like, "Yes, man, I'm there with you." I want a motorcycle all of a sudden. I, like it just totally brought me there. Oh, completely. I I mentioned to Nicole when we were watching this. I'm like, can you imagine like being in 1969 and hearing this song like before it's been kind of beaten to death? Like the, I, I was realizing the last time I'd heard this song, "Born to Be Wild," was in a diaper commercial. Oh like, my god! It was it was about pampers for overly active or wild toddlers. So I remember. I think <clears> of <throat> the Jonathan Taylor Thomas movie. Oh my god! Yeah, wasn't <laughs> remember, the, remember that movie? I think vaguely, yeah. like there was a uh, they were like the three brothers or yeah, something and they like get that. like attacked by a bear. Yeah, but it was all of those kids that were like in. Um, like home improvement and all those shows with all those just cute little blonde kids that all the girls loved. And it, it was like putting fucking Hanson in a movie. Yeah. It's like the Hanson version it. of the Revenant. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the so Revenant. yeah, I mean that, that's that soundtrack really did bring it together in such an amazing way. And just like, yeah, like I said, you have to kind of distance yourself. You have to put yourself back in that world where born to be wild Still, it's new. It's new, and it meant something kind of different. You know, they get a Bob Dylan song in here, even though it's not Bob Dylan performing. My favorite one in here is "The Weight" by the band. Uh, they, you know, that's my favorite song from this whole movie. But they're 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 all good. Even like the goofy ones, like "Don't Bogart That Joint." You know, it's like <laughs> know. it's also played yeah. completely sincerely, which I think is fun. I, I think the music kind of took the place of dialogue in a lot of ways. I thought so too. I have a fact about that actually. Oh, hit me. Yeah. There is no audible English dialogue in this movie until nine minutes and 35 seconds. That's crazy. Yeah. That's a huge amount of time. It is. For a 90 minute film, it's like like 10% of the movie that's already no talking. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I would have timed how much was music versus dialogue now that you say that. Yeah. There's really quite a rich amount here and uh, uh but the movie's also pretty content with silence as well and there's other sounds that they replace it with too there's motorcycle sounds there's airplane sounds they kinda... oh that dramatic scene where the airplane's going over them and they yeah. all very dramatically oh yes <laughs> i love that that like that's how we introduce these characters is that it's this wordless drug deal and the the planes going overhead, they, like there's a great deal of like tension and pressure being generated from that constant noise. But you know, like this is their ticket. Like they're they're making this one huge deal. They're going to be set for life, and they're going to be able to kind of do whatever they want. You know exactly what is happening. You know exactly who these people are, and exactly what they've been through. And then when you finally have that opening scene of dialogue where they're being turned away from the motel, it's like, okay. I know where this is going. Like, it was just was really set up so beautifully that by the time I was a quarter of the way in it, I was fully invested in yeah. their lives. And really, I you really, again, you have to put yourself back in the 60s and think about, like, being alive at this time. Between 1967 and 1969, like, movies were suddenly doing things that you didn't think were possible. Like, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, The Wild Bunch, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, all of those movies came out in this three-year span. And it's it just kind of reinvigorated everything. And so just the idea of seeing a drug deal happening openly in this scene is pretty shocking. Like if you're in the audience in 1969, this is still kind of a shocking thing to see. Uh, 
It's also weird to see Captain America in this context. It's used very like often, like the phrase Captain America and the character's name is Captain America long before that became kind of the cultural icon that he is now. Like he was obviously a comic book character at this time, but like comic books weren't what they are now. Um, now this, the movie kind of like, there's not really a whole lot of plot going on here necessarily. It's, we know kind of the core outline. It's these two guys. They're just kind of like, uh, uh, drifters and they just make this massive drug deal. They're going to use that money to get them to new Orleans so they could participate in Mardi Gras. After that, they're going to aim to just like retire to Florida and kind of live out their days getting wasted and, and, and being free. Uh, and so we're just basically following them from Los Angeles to new Orleans, uh, over the course of this, uh, couple day trip. And it's, it's, uh, it's just kind of a lot of little scenes of people interacting of, of uh, these little slice of life moments where they meet these odd characters and run into uh, bad situations and mostly just do a lot of drugs. Um, you know, and, and I remember being younger and watching this movie and just feeling bored out of my mind just because when I was younger, I kind of needed a little bit more to happen. I needed a little more propulsive energy to it. Uh, and this time I was just kind of happy to go along for the ride, you know, yeah, I felt like I could just, like, really watch this movie. You know, I, I didn't want to be, like, on my phone, because if I was on my phone, I'd miss all of it, too. Yeah. But, you know, like, that's how a lot of times I watch TV now, you know? Yeah. I think everyone kind of does that, but... It was nice, because it felt like, you know, when you spell it out the way you did, there's not a lot of plot. No. There's, like, there's no real great conflict and real, like, final act, but there are many conflicts in each little vignette that were oh, yeah. really like satisfying and meaningful to watch. Yeah, um, it's, it's a lot of kind of like uh, uh, nomad philosophizing. It's, it's meeting people uh, and having deep conversations about life and meaning and, and all of that. I'm jumping ahead here. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, but the couplet of scenes when they are at the, commune and they're swimming with the yeah. girls and Fonda just has this moment where the camera fixes on him and all of a sudden he's not having fun anymore and he looks very like forlorn and like and then the next scene um, is him talking to the guy and he says you know this could be the right place for you you don't have a lot of time and he says, I'm hip to time, but I, I just got to go. And it was a really, to me, powerful thing of like the whole message of you represent freedom to them. And that's scary. But then Fonda's character kind of throughout has this theme of like, maybe I just want to settle down and like hang out with people I like and not be so crazy all the time. And I just thought that that was really well represented in very subtle ways throughout those series of vignettes that comprised of the movie it's interesting too because we get a moment like it's pretty late in the movie but we get a moment where he seems to kind of foresee his own death uh and i'm wondering if that's kind of a thing that was meant to be a running motif throughout the movie because you know we talked about how hopper wanted it non-linear right i think it was running throughout the movie like I, the way i thought about it was there were so many like there was all these like prayers and saying grace and like talking about like life and death and like 
I, I think that that happened in every place that they spent any meaningful amount of time in. Yeah. Like, and I, I think that kind of. Now, what what did you guys think about this commune? Because I like I remember watching this the first time and thinking like, oh man, it's like okay, this this is like very pro commune. And I'm watching it this time and I'm like, this group feels doomed. Like, and I don't, and I think that the two guys are aware of it, at least to a certain degree. Like, they're kind of transigent. They're passing through here. But these, there's too many people. They're trying to harvest in the desert. Like, they're trying to plant seeds in the sand that aren't really going to grow. And they're, they're kind of exchanging, you know, they're, they're bartering, like, theater. And they're bartering their bodies. And they're bartering drugs and things like that. Like... It, it it seems a little glamorized at first, like this idea of living communally like this, but we have that kind of long, slow pan where we we start on like the leader and then we circle all the way around. We see every single person in the commune and then go back to the leader. And it's a long shot because there's a lot of mouths to feed here and no real consistent way to do it. So it, it feel it felt a little doomed to me. I don't know. What did you guys think of it? I loved that shot. I had to go back and watch that shot like three times because the first time I was watching it was kind of like I started to zone out because it's so long. And then it kind of keeps what I was looking at. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. And so I went back and like really paid attention to every face. And you start to feel so uncomfortable with the way that these people are looking at you. And you're like, I don't like this and I don't want to be a part of this and I would like to leave please yeah I I think what's super interesting about that is like I was thinking about the previous family that they had stayed with because I was thinking the same thing I was like they have so many kids Mm -hmm. but it it didn't really represent that part as being doomed It, it glorified that part it was like you live off the land and everything's great and I think yeah it was kind of interesting that like this Catholic family with all these kids they were idealizing and then the commune it was kind of yeah and I'm, but I, and I, it feels like the the farmers were going in with a little bit more they're going in a little more open-eyed than I think the people at the commune were like they even point out it's like uh, nothing's really going to grow the way that you're planting these they're not even really planting they're just kind of scattering seeds on the <laughs> sand you know and like yeah. And then they're going to do a rain dance later and try and get it, get it to rain. Like it's not likely going to work out for these folks. They are, (laughs) they are the seeds drifting on the sand. They're not going to take root here. Uh, But it it is, it's kind of a romantic idea. Uh, Shortly after they leave the commune, they uh, wind up accidentally uh, getting arrested for being in a parade without a permit because they're (laughs) riding their bikes through town and they just happen to kind of fall into a parade and this is where they get thrown to jail and they meet George Hansen, who is played by Jack Nicholson. And I want to talk a little bit about Nicholson in this movie because I I don't know if there's ever been a performance that's been more of a of a just a nuclear blast of like, oh, here's a fucking movie star. Like yeah. from, the, from the second you see him, it's like, why has this guy not been in everything ever? Like the, and and then of course He's he would so be in everything from that. Fine in this movie too. Like that first time he looks around and it zooms in on like his mouth, I was like <laughs> oh my god mr nicholson <laughs> yeah like his his teeth in particular i don't know why he's like so beautiful they're so he's, yeah and like he I, there's there's just something about jack nicholson that no one else can even come close to imitating it's just the way of like 
he he seems like he's seducing you all the time and he seems like he's up to no good all the time but you still just really want to party fun. with him yeah right it was really fun having you know the shining is one of my favorite movies and yeah. seeing him around the same age in such a different character where I was like, I'm so horrified by this version of you and so turned on by this version of you. And you're the same person. That's crazy. Yeah. And I mean, just from the moment you meet him in this movie, it, it's it's just this shot of life, you know? And he he brings all these esoteric little details to the part. Like every time he takes a drink, he does this, and then he just shouts some random word, like Indian or swamp or like all these really strange choices. Now, Nicholson, at this point in his career, he'd appeared in a couple of movies, a couple of TV shows, usually very small parts. But mostly at this point, he was known as like a script doctor. He kind of went around patching up scripts for people and like writing these very psychedelic movies. Like like he wrote The Trip that we talked about earlier. And he wrote this movie called Head, uh, starring the monkeys. And it's a really weird experimental, like crazy film that you would not expect from the monkeys. And I'm going to do a quick side tangent a couple years ago when i worked as a a journalist i got to interview mickey dolans from the monkeys and i had to ask him about this movie about that movie because it was it was nuts and um he mentioned that uh jack nicholson was hanging out on set every day and peter fonda and uh, uh dennis hopper would come in and they would have their production meetings for easy rider during the shooting of of this movie so mickey dolans was kind of there for a lot of it and uh even then, like then and now, Nicholson's kind of always had the reputation of like, uh, like like he is this massive movie star and he seems like he'd be difficult. He seems like he'd be trouble, but he's kind of like down. If he signs up to be in a movie, he's going to throw his weight behind it. He's going to show up. He's going to try and uh, and he's going to uh, support everybody and, and do what he wants to do. And I think that's kind of a cool thing about him that uh, you wouldn't necessarily guess from looking at him. Um, mentioned he said about this movie that he wanted to do it and like knew right away it would be a success because it moved one step away from exploitation towards some kind of literary quality and i thought that was so beautiful that's really true too like motorcycle movies at this time were were b pictures you know They, they weren't prestige movies they were you know tough guys and tough dames and there's gonna be fighting and racing and like you know implied nudity and things like that you know it's it, it was uh it wasn't like classy you know and i don't know that classy is the right word for easy rider either it feels a little too dangerous for that but uh it is weird I that you mentioned that class about it yeah yeah like it reminds me of like a jack kerouac book or something kerouac yes, definitely yes. yeah there's a lot of kerouac in this like just kind of the idea of it uh, I one of my favorite moments of the movie is the reveal of uh, Nicholson's helmet, and it's one of everyone's <laughs> favorite kind of shots of this. I also like that they asked him for a helmet, considering like uh, Fonda doesn't wear his helmet most of the time; it's on the back of his spoiler, and Hopper doesn't wear one at all, even when he's like standing on the bike and like playing grab ass in the yes, back of the I motorcycles. And we we were talking again. It's like we we talked about this on our Raging Bull episode not too long ago when we learned that Jake LaMotta lived to be ninety five. <laughs> And then we're just like, how did the hell did Dennis Hopper live to be 74 years old? Like, <laughs> living his life like this. And like, I don't know. It's it's insane that he lived as long as he did. Um, yeah, uh, Nicholson's whole UFO monologue around the campfire is definitely a highlight for me. I love that whole scene. And he's just so captivating in it. Uh, and this 
100% made his career. Uh, he got an Oscar nomination for this movie. And then the next year, it was Five Easy Pieces. And then, like, two years after that, it was Chinatown. And then One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And then he's just off to the races, you know? And now he's the actor who has won more competitive acting Oscars than anyone else in history. Wow, so I didn't know that. Yeah, hopefully he's hopefully he's got one more film role in him. He hasn't done a movie in 10 years, uh, and he's 82 now. So hopefully he's got one more in him. Um, so the Hanson is like kind of summarily killed. They make it to Los or to uh, New Orleans, and they're getting heckled. They're getting heckled by um, like local residents, like you know, making fun of their long hair and everything like that. And uh, that night, these guys break into their camp and just beat uh, Jack Nicholson to death. And it's it's almost like glossed over in an interesting way. I wanted to ask you guys about this because like. Here's a guy that they both really liked. Uh, they liked spending time with him. They spent several days with him. Uh, they were just having a big laugh with him right before he died. And when he's killed, they kind of just move on, and it doesn't seem like it haunts them at all in a sense that, like, and this kind of made it really clear to me that, well, we really don't know who these guys are. Like, we don't know their backstory. We don't know, uh, are, are they always like this? Is this new? And, and something about the perfunctory way they walked away made me feel like this isn't their first dead body. I mean, you have to think, though, they couldn't go to the authorities because it was the authorities oh, yeah. involved in this. And oh, 100%. They easily would have been blamed for it. He's a lawyer, right? And, like, they would have definitely been blamed for his death. Oh, like, yeah. Probably, you know, that would have been the end for them. So... Like, I I do see where they were coming from with that, but yeah, it does feel a little glossed over. Yeah, you know, the whole going to the poorhouse in New Orleans, they did. They were like, well, that's what he wanted to do. And yeah, but there there wasn't like once they left him, there wasn't a scene of them looking back and like, oh, remember George? Remember? I mean, unless you can consider like the very self destructive LSD trip that they take as as kind of uh, them processing that. That could have been the reason things went so bad. Well, well, I have to imagine fine. that um, when you're involved in that level of drug crime, you've probably seen some things and yeah. know, you know, when you're doing something, something for so long, you get so desensitized, desensitized towards it that they probably were just like, you know, everyone, something happens to everyone. And so it happened. And here yeah. we go. Yeah. I think weirdly the the helmet, like they were trying to keep him safe with the helmet, and it's like they kind of knew that they were that he was putting not him safe. in danger. That that yeah. he was he was down, but he's also a tourist. You know, he's yeah. not. He's yeah, not you're really, not you're not part of this. Yeah, at least yeah. not yet. You know, like not in a, not as not as ingrained as they are. Uh, so we finally make it to New Orleans. Their first stop, of course, is the brothel uh, where they hook up with the two prostitutes played by, uh, I think, first role for Karen Black and the first role for Tony Basil. Uh, did you Do you know who Tony Basil is, then? Do you know the song uh, Mickey? Oh, Mickey, no you're so shit. fine. You're so fine. Yeah, she's the writer and singer of uh, Mickey, the, the infamous earworm from That's the early amazing. 80s. That's amazing. I love uh, that. At this time, I think she was just like a, a, a dancer. She was probably 18 or 19 when they shot this movie. Um, and Karen Black, of course, would be uh, Oscar nominated in a couple years for for Five Easy Pieces and Nashville. And she's she's a great actress. Um, they they wind up in this cemetery, and 
So I have a story about the cemetery because we've actually been there. It's in New Orleans. It's cemetery number one. Um, and there's a big statue. You know, there's a scene in the movie where Peter Fonda is in the arms of like the mother Mary and he's like asking forgiveness and everything like that. So I went on a tour of this cemetery and uh, we passed by that, that grave. It's still standing, but the arm is missing now. And apparently uh, Peter Fonda broke the arm when he was climbing into it. Uh, they were not supposed to be filming in there. Uh, it's a Catholic cemetery. They wouldn't have been given permission had they asked. So they just kind of snuck in and shot all this kind of uh, fairly shocking stuff. Like they're nude and they're having sex and they're doing drugs and they're oh breaking God. statues. Uh, so after this movie came out, the Catholic Church, uh, they strenuously protested. And then they banned anyone from ever shooting in this graveyard ever again, unless it was for a documentary. So now anytime you see a movie with a, a graveyard that's set in New Orleans, it's going to be one of the Protestant graveyards from across the street and never this one uh, because they did too much damage to it. So that's awesome. I thought that was interesting. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So how did I, I've never been a big fan of extended drug trip sequences in movies. I don't know. How do you guys feel about it? I mean, I think this one was pretty brilliant in a lot of ways mm. i was fine with it okay yeah. well i me i mean <laughs> i'm thinking of like um oh my god i keep talking i'll remember in a second <laughs> yeah i don't know there, there's for some reason i don't i don't know maybe it's just my you know square conservative childhood coming back and just kind of like being worried about seeing all these bad drug things happening but uh they always just kind of stress me out and uh uh and this one feels very, very long as well, which it, it's it, it wasn't as big of a problem this time watching it as when I watched it in the past. I don't know. This is more just a personal gripe. I don't really have any significant problem with it. It was more just gripey. Um, but we kind of come to the climax of the movie after this where they are uh, getting ready to leave New Orleans. And they have this moment at the campfire. And I want to ask both of you about this moment. Billy's excited because he's finally saying like, oh, look, we did it. We did it. We, we accomplished what we set out to do. We made this huge drug deal. We're set for life. Like we have this enough money to be free for the rest of our lives. And uh, Fonda just says, we blew it. We blew it, man. Good night. And a lot has been written about this. And I'm curious what you guys think. Like, what, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by we blew it? I think that you can look at this entire film as a critique of America. Yeah. Obviously. But I think that it is, that's really something. It's poignant. It's yeah. more poignant than you want it to be. It's a cowboy film, you know, it's a buddy. It's just two guys, but it's the tagline. Um, they went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. Yeah. It's, like that's so heavy. Yeah. And I do think that from the beginning, you you know, you're first used to them as drug dealers. Yeah. Or smugglers or whatever. And you get this like idea of them of who they are. And then as it goes on, it changes. And he's just like, What are we doing? Where are we? What did we do? You know, like yeah. what is even for? What's the point? okay, we have money, but like, now what? Right, and yeah. And, or maybe it's just that the, the acquisition of his money. Yeah. Yeah, being, becoming disillusioned with his 
lifestyle. And, and that's, I think maybe that's one of the things I have trouble with is because Captain America and Billy are, they're ciphers in a lot of ways. They're kind of just here for us to project what we want onto them. And because we really don't know about what motivates them or why they're doing this. So it's hard to say exactly what he means when he says we blew it. Is it because he feels that just the acquisition of money is selling out? Uh, does he feel bad about like selling? I don't think he would feel bad about selling drugs. That doesn't seem to track with their behavior in the movie. But or, or maybe he's just kind of maybe maybe it's going back to him presaging his own death and knowing that like, all right, this is coming tomorrow. Uh we blew it. Like we blew our lives. We, we, he, he's expressing regret at the imminent end of his life. Yeah. Like there's so many places they could have stopped and stayed and been happy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe he's just seeing like the million different ways, you know, maybe is this the movie kind of saying that like maybe settling down and having the more buttoned down life would have been safer, would have been better. Would have, I don't think that's what this movie is saying. But I also don't feel like it's glamorizing a lot of this lifestyle either in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think I they're trying to figure out what freedom is in a lot of ways. Like, mm -hmm. that's, that's very clear. Yeah. Here and well, and the guy who says, you know, you represent freedom to them. Who says that again? Oh, Nicholson says that. Yeah, yeah. yeah right, right, right. Oh, yes, yes. I love them. And they're so yeah. close together. And you're yeah. just like, and they're whispering with them. That's so good. And you're but just anyway, like, yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> he says, like, freedom to one person isn't freedom to another person. And I think that the two main leads show that because I yeah. think they want very different things and they, they feel different from yeah. one another. I mean, Wyatt is like, and we do learn by at the end of the movie, that his name is Wyatt. And uh, I've got an anecdote about this to follow up on that later, but uh, Wyatt and Billy, like we get the sense that Billy is kind of more of the, stooge more of the wild card while Wyatt seems more stoic like he's he's projecting a lot more air of confidence or like this kind of christ-like sense of being and like uh he seems to be a little bit more a more complete version of who he is whereas billy's still got a lot of this manic kind of paranoid energy um he and reminds me of like yes yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just dennis hopper yeah. um but Fonda's character reminded me of like the old Western cowboys. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Like Clint Eastwood, just that stoicism and. Oh, I mean, there's a there's a scene where they explicitly draw those lines, like early on when they're changing their tire, and in the forefront yes. they're they're shooing the horse. Yeah. You know, I so love it's that shot. immediately setting the idea that these are the modern outlaws. You know, these are the guys. Yeah. They're they're they're. And the, when they clank at the same time. One on the motorcycle, one on the horseshoe. I was just like, oh, my God. I and, love that shot. And the shot where you can see the two drug guy or the two guys in the mirror and then the guy in the car checking the drugs. And you can see all the characters in one shot in such a unique way. Oh, I just thought the cinematography was yummy. Yeah. This is Laszlo Kovacs, a Hungarian filmmaker or a Hungarian uh, cinematographer, one of the best that ever did it. Uh, and uh, uh, one of his, this was kind of his breakout role as a cinematographer as well. You know, uh, the, interestingly too, that, that deal, the person they were uh, dealing to in the very first scene of the movie, Phil Spector, 
the famous music producer who is now in jail for murdering his wife, uh, will be up for parole in 2024. How do I not know who this person is? That's okay. No, he, he was he was kind of the big music producer who made like uh, they call it the wall of sound. It's basically like old the girl groups and like uh, of of the 50s and 60s. So he was a big deal. And then yeah, a couple years ago he he uh, killed his wife. He'll. He, he's he was played by Al Pacino in a TV movie not too long ago. Anyway, yeah, I'll have to watch. A lot of lot of fascinating figures rotating through this movie. Um, one of yeah, the one other thing I wanted to touch on in this movie, like I mentioned, the name Wyatt is very significant because they're drawing parallels to Wyatt Earp and Billy the Kid, uh, and this is hit home really hard in the 2012 film Easy Rider to the Ride Home. Yes, there is a oh. sequel. The, okay, the story behind this is that there's a retired lawyer in Southern California who is obsessed with this movie, and he bought the rights to this film from Peter Fonda for very cheap because Fonda was in some trouble with taxes, and he kind of needed to get rid of it. So this guy bought the rights to Easy Rider and made, another, made a sequel starring himself as his brother Virgil, and there's another brother Morgan, like which are the names of all the Earp brothers. Uh, it's a legendary terrible movie like it's embarrassingly oh, bad like it's a, it's a bad movie night pick like i it's can't that, wait to rent it i know i'm like we need to watch this it's our in, next bad movie night we're gonna yes. do it we're gonna do it. it is so inept and is hilariously overwrought and like completely misses the point of the original movie like so entirely we should do a virtual bad movie night let's and we do all it. press play at the same time yes sure. yes let's do it easy rider Two: the ride home yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know i was thinking that i was like how could you ever remake this movie like it, it's not you can't catch this time no, period no in this... to really go with it at this no point. Yeah. no it's it's too singular it's too much of its time you know it's not something you could really replicate and if you do replicate it you want it to be something that's more zeitgeisty that's more like you you want to put a pin in it sometimes some movies you want to be kind of ethereal and be able to kind of watch at any time and like represent any time period and i don't think this is one i think this is one that needs to kind of it's like more of an anthropological artifact we need to see yeah. what the world looked like at this time and what the temper was at this time uh and as that i think it's a very valuable movie yeah um I think we've kind of reached about the end of my notes. Uh, does anybody else have anything we want to add that we may not have covered about Easy Rider? Well, kind of echoing your last thought, um, they talk about this movie, that they made this movie for the youth of the time yeah. in a time when they were in the era of Gidget. You know what I mean? And he was like, well, those movies that they're making don't represent the youth that we grew up with. Right. And so let's make something for them, which I just thought was really sweet. And a film starring grown men and women for kids, I think is really influential and cool. There's not like yeah. a kid in the movie. No, no. And I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely like a call to the counterculture and, I, I mean, it really can't be overstated how influential this movie was because this movie was so successful on such a small budget. Studios started taking risks on young filmmakers. So, like, without this movie, we wouldn't get Martin Scorsese. We wouldn't get uh, Francis Ford Coppola. We wouldn't get Steven Spielberg. I mean, we wouldn't get, like, 
all these guys, you know, it's it's interesting to think about Spielberg now, but when he first was starting, he was seen as kind of like a visionary guy. He was doing things the way nobody else was doing them. And uh, there really wouldn't be room for these people to kind of come in and make the, their early movies and kind of get their feet wet without Easy Rider paving the way. And it also just kind of gave movies over to the public, you know? This was the death knell for the studio system. Like, the studio system up till now was about, like, getting your movie stars, locking them into these really restrictive contracts where they could only do the movies that you want them to do. And now people were able to kind of take more artistic control. You know, you could never imagine in the 1950s anyone making any kind of movie like this and through the studio system. You had to go outside of it. And this really kind of, it, it presaged the 70s in a really interesting way. Um. I think one thing we didn't really hit on was like the actual ending. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're right. Yeah. That is something that we need to talk about because <laughs> they are kind of summarily murdered. Uh, they're, they're driving along. Some hillbillies come along uh, with shotguns. They like to point it out the window and startle them. And it, from what I was reading it, like he accidentally shot the, shot him the first time. Yeah. And then uh, when Captain America was coming back, they had to shoot him intentionally to protect themselves. But um the, the actors that they got were two real locals that Dennis Hopper just saw and thought they looked perfect for it. Hence the guy with the huge goiter on his neck and like, yeah, very gross looking dude. Oh, uh, but yeah, these uh, like it's it's a minute, like a, a one minute long scene. The very final minute of the movie is just these two guys dying and then a helicopter pan, panning out and just seeing the smoking wreckage of their motorcycles. It's very abrupt and it's very unsentimental. Um did it did this work for you like emma is the first time seeing this did this work for you yeah because i think it echoed just kind of that feeling of underlying doom that you get from the beginning of the movie yeah you know and i so i felt like i was prepared for whatever to happen to them because they were prepared for anything you yeah. know what i mean and it just like everywhere they went, there was some really nice, sweet things about it and some really kind of uncomfortable things about it. Yeah. And the two played really nicely. And it also echoed, I think, how you were saying they reacted to um, their friend's death earlier. Yeah. It's just it is what it is. Yeah. And they so just kind of push past. Yeah. It left kind of the same feeling of like in my tummy as like requiem for a dream like i just feel Mm. like you just told me something right there that i need to sit on for a minute (laughs) yeah yeah for sure for sure and i mean those guys that were threatening them and did this like they could have been any character that they met like throughout the movie because there there was just so many people who were so i don't know like cruel or yeah i just wrote down diner scene yeah because that whole thing the parallel of the sheriff and the local guy being gross and talking shit and the girls like idolizing them them. yeah it was just like yeah fetishizing is probably better yeah but the way that they got some of these shots incidentally these were all just like they had some extras hired but then when they went to shoot in this diner, there were just some real guys in there that were eating and they were like cracking wise and making jokes about them. And Dennis Hopper thought they would suit it better. So he asked if he could wow. film them. And then he said, uh, I just want you to react to these two guys as if you just heard that they raped and murdered a girl outside of town. 
And that's where, because he wanted to get that vitriol. He wanted to get it like to feel really hateful and really gross. So, and and he wanted to to make them also feel extra protective of those like six young women who were trying to get on the bikes, you know? Um, So yeah, it's, it's an interesting way that they kind of brought in real locals um, to kind of play these parts. But yeah, I, I think that there's a, like, like you said, I think there was an inevitability to the death that I think it didn't sit, didn't really like resonate with me the first time I watch it, but you watch it again, you watch it again, and you see that they kind of are building to this with their flash forwards and with some of their philosophies. You, you see that it's building. It's not out of the blue. I mean, you know, it, before that, there's a whole scene in a graveyard. Like, yeah. And, there's the and from the very habit. beginning, you have those like super abrupt transitions where they're flickering between the two images. Yeah. And I just feel like that already sets the tension like off immediately. Oh, yeah. And I know something's going to happen. Yeah. Also, something else I never really thought about, but like looking back on it now, I don't think we ever see another person on the road until these guys who killed them. Like all the long oh. scenes of them driving are just like just the two of them. And they, it's a wide open road and they're grab assing and goofing off. And maybe there'll be people off on the side of the road doing stuff. But there are no other cars or motorcycles. And anytime they do run into other cars or motorcycles, they get in trouble. Wow, I didn't even put that together. Yeah, I, I didn't. That didn't occur to me until just now. But yeah, yeah. Well, that is awesome. Thank you guys so much for talking about Easy Rider with me. I, I think I walked away with this with a much richer uh, appreciation of it as a movie than I did when I was going into it. Yeah, because like I said, my 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 kind of prevailing opinion of it was that this is a, a really important movie, but it's not necessarily like a great movie or a movie that I love, but uh, I'm getting closer on it. Honestly, yeah. like I feel like uh, I really see the merit beyond just what it influenced. It's like, it, it sounds like it's accidentally a great movie, which is yes. pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they stumbled into this like without fully understanding, but it, it came together. And I think, I think it was made from a place of honesty and I think it was made from a place of integrity, even if, uh, the chaos of it kind of undermined a lot of what they were going for. Uh, but it came together in the end, almost improbably. And I do not want to see the five-hour cut of this. No. No. No, no. no. <laughs> I know an hour and a half even started to feel long in the middle there. Yeah, especially when you don't have, like, a lot of plot. Like, you don't, you wouldn't want to drag it out. I think that was a smart editing choice. Yeah, I do, too. Thank you both so much for being here talking about this movie with me. Uh, Emma, do you have anything to plug or any social media you want people to check out? You're doing such amazing stuff. Oh, thank you. Well, um, I have a dance studio that we're keeping open for kids to be able to be creative virtually. And we also help with school tutoring and um, college applications for some of our seniors and that kind of thing. So you can check us out at evolutiondanceco.com. That's amazing. That's amazing. I'm, I'm so proud of you with the dance studio. You're doing oh, such amazing work. You. I think that's awesome. Nicole, do you have anything you want to plug as well? Um, sure. If anyone wants to check out my Instagram, I, I am a personal trainer, but you can kind of just look at my pictures, I guess. Um, <laughs> dot rx i'm sure i'll be tagged on instagram for well this, so. absolutely i will tag you yes well thank you so much everybody for being here we are rogers list pod at gmail.com if you have any questions you want to write into the show we will read them on the air uh be sure to check us out next week we are going to be talking about the movie 
The Producers, Mel Brooks's immortal comedy classic that would, of course, inspire the hit Broadway musical. I'm looking forward to revisiting this. I was so mad that all the guest spots were filled for that. Oh, no. (laughs) I was livid. (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much for being here again, Emma and Nicole. Uh, I love you both. I'm excited to see you again in real life. Uh, And Well, I see Nicole in real life all the time. But uh, Emma, I'm excited (laughs) to see you in real life. Uh, And be sure to tune in next week for The Producers. Bye, everybody. Boom, boom. Vroom, vroom. I just need some place where I can lay my head. Hey, mister, can you tell where a man might find a bed? He just grinned and shook my hand. No, was all he said.